This is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker. And now, here's Trey Blocker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. Today's guest is Dr. Daryl Scott. He is the senior pastor and the co-founder of New Spirit Revival Center in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. He owns a record label. He owns a radio station. He is a planter of churches, and he is also the CEO of President Trump's Diversity Coalition. So, Dr. Scott, thanks for coming on the Trey Blocker Show today. God bless you. Thank you for having me. I've, I've watched a lot of video of you on YouTube recently, and I've heard you on Sean Hannity's show, and I heard you make what some might consider some controversial statements about guns in churches on Sean Hannity's show. I've watched you make the talking head spin on MSNBC and CNN uh, in recent months, and uh, you and I share a, a disdain for the liberal media. So I'm looking forward to talking about all of those issues. But before we do that, uh, I'd love to get our audience educated on who you are, where you grew up, where you're from, and, and what motivates you in life. So if you would, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were you born and raised? I'm a Cleveland, Ohio native, born and raised in Cleveland, on the east side of Cleveland. Um, when I, when we moved upon on the street that I grew up on, I think I was five years old, going on six years old, and the street was a. We were maybe the second or third black family on the street, and I, you know, when I was raised, my friends, we had black and white friends, on the street. I tell everybody, uh, oftentimes, you know, especially in this. Uh, racially polarizing political climate that our country is currently being uh, infiltrated with by the liberal left-wing media. Right. I was not raised in a hate-the-white-man home. You know, my father had a job. He always had a job. He always had what I consider to be a pretty good job uh, in the early 60s and throughout the 60s into the 70s. But he went to work every day, and he encouraged us to get jobs and go to work. Right. And I wasn't raised in that climate of my father blaming the white man for whatever we did not have or whatever we were not able to do. He was a guy that got up every day, went to work, and I can never remember him taking off or being sick or anything like that. And he encouraged us to do the same. So that might have shaped my worldview, my outlook, perceptions, and mindsets as to the type of person that I am now. Sure. I was raised in the 60s. Uh, when I listened to Martin Luther King when I was young, I did a talk on him in school when I was young, when he talked about people being judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin, and him having a dream that one day the sons of slaves and the former slave owners would sit down together. You know, that day is here, and it seems as if those who are the um, fruit of that generation don't want that day to be here. They want to go back to uh, another time and another place and try to return America back to a time when we were divided. But I think that division is an illusion. And I think it's an illusion that's forced upon this country simply because Donald Trump is president. Uh, now, I grew up, uh, I made my life choices, uh, bad life choices, poor life choices. And I was out in the streets doing a lot of things that, you know, shouldn't be done. But they're part of my, as we say in the church world today, part of my testimony. Sure. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I don't do it anymore, I'm ashamed of some of the things I did, but that's all part of 
what contributes to me being the person that I am now. But That's I right. will say this, I belonged those streets and gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ when I was 23 years old. Even though at 23, I was an old 23. I was right. a 23 that had been around the block a few times and done a lot of things, but I gave my life to the Lord at 23 years old. I'll be 59 in a couple of weeks, so it's been almost 36 years living for God. So the things I did prior to that, you know, I'll chalk it up to youth, ignorance, stupidity, and everything else that a young person does, but I thank God that he pulled me out of it, set me on the right path, and I've been trying to walk that path to the best of my ability since then. Sure. I've been married to the same woman for almost 36 years. We've been together almost 39 years. Congratulations. Thank God for her as well. Absolutely. So so you were born again in, in 1982. Is that year correct? Yes. So yes, what sir. was the, I, I always love hearing these stories. What was the moment or what was the pool uh, that, that where Jesus took a hold of your, your, your shirt collar and said, boy, come with me? My story is a little bit different. I wasn't down and out okay. when I gave my life to the Lord. I was up and out. <laughs> and you know, I was um, living in that street life. I was, I was uh, selling drugs, and um, on this, oh, it was a particular Friday night when I was uh, preparing things for, you know, for what we did on Friday nights. And I mm -hmm. asked my wife to go to the store for me. Her and I were living together, and she went to the store uh, right around seven, and didn't come back till after midnight. And when she got back after midnight, I went, what the heck is going on? Where have you been? What have you done? And she came home and said, I'm saved now. I'm a Christian. I wound up in church tonight, and you have to move. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Not living okay. Anymore. And, you know, what <laughs> happened? There's a gentleman that lived across the street from her. He's actually a bishop today. He has a church. Oh, wow. He's a bishop. But he was a childhood friend of hers, and he saw her walking to the corner store, and he and my wife, if you know her, anything about her, she's not one to give in to peer pressure. Okay. But for whatever God was doing that night, this Bishop Ronald Furby, uh, he was just Ron back then, he talked her into the car. Belinda, come go to church with me tonight. Come go to huh. church with me tonight. She kept putting it off. I'm not going, whatever. But she wound up going and gave her life to the Lord. Wow. So she came home, told me she was a Christian now. And she was one of those ones that gave her life to the Lord and was just perfect immediately. You know, it took me a while to develop. She was just an overnight sensation. Right. Instant. And she came home, and she wouldn't let me into the to the bedroom that night. Huh. And, you know, living together for a couple of years. We had a home. We had a family. She wouldn't let me in the bedroom that night. And she started, you know, requesting. She didn't badger me or beat me up, but she would ask me to go to church. And I wouldn't go. And, you know, I still was doing what I was doing. So maybe uh, a little over a month later, one Friday night again, I was all getting set to go out in the streets and sell my product, and I had just mm -hmm. taken all my money and um, re-upped. And uh, I was going, and, and that night she was insistent, just go to church with me and then go do what you do. And I just wanted her to shut up and leave me alone. And so I went <laughs> to church that night. And uh, I listened to the preacher, and when he had the altar call and asked people to come up, I told myself, I'm not getting up, and I wound up standing up. And huh. he asked me to come down to the altar and give your life to Jesus. And I wasn't going down there, and I found myself walking down to the altar. And I got on my knees. I prayed that prayer, sinner's prayer. They took us downstairs in the basement and baptized us. Now, what stood out to me was the gentleman who baptized me, the deacon, was a guy I had grown up with. Oh, wow. And I hadn't, seen him, I hadn't seen him in years. Last time I saw him, he and I were doing a drug deal together. And they baptized me. 
And he looked at me and he said, welcome home. And they baptized me. And um, I went upstairs and I told the preacher, I said, well, I've got drugs at home. And he said, well, just go home and get rid of it and come back. Come right. back Sunday. And he made it sound easy. So I went home that night. I gathered everything. I mean, all my money was tied up in this. I gathered everything up that I had. And I went to the bathroom and was going to flush it down the toilet. Then I said, well, no, wait a minute. I'll just finish selling it. Then I won't do it anymore. Right. And my wife is still crying. She says, no, God wants you to get rid of it right now. And I flushed everything down the toilet. I never smoked another cigarette. I never took another drink of liquor. I never used drugs again. I've been sober. I've been clean ever since. And I've been a Christian ever since. I never went back, never turned around, never thought about turning around. And we started a brand new life. That is an absolutely amazing story. Thank you for sharing it. About a decade after that happened, if I'm getting my timeline correct, uh, you founded New Spirit Revival Center Ministries. Uh, tell us, tell us how, how you got the, the vision or the calling for that. Well, you know, we always, we, we, wanted, we, we found a, a church, you know, we, when, when, when I got saved and led my, gave my life to the Lord, my wife and I moved across town. Uh, there's a scripture in the Bible that says, evil communications corrupt good manners. And sure. so you have to make sure that you have a clean environment. And that environment was not conducive to Christianity for me right there. So we moved across town, didn't tell anybody where we moved to. I told my mother, but I told her, don't tell anybody else. Right. And we moved, we, we, we went to a church and it was actually a mixed, mixed church. My first pastor was Italian and um, I got a job. I had to get a job now because I wasn't <laughs> a real job. Anymore. Yeah. I had to get an honest job and I <laughs> went to work and I went to church and I started, we always, her and I both had the type of personalities that we like being active. And I had a chauffeur's license because I got a job as a shuttle bus driver at a hotel and I volunteered my services at my church and I started off driving the church bus. And my okay. wife would work in the okay. Sunday school. And we wound up just doing anything that you could do in a church. During the course of that time, we participated in a lot of different para-ministries. And we um, would go down to the juvenile homes and speak to the children and, and conduct help conduct anti-drug crusades with different churches around the, 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 the city. And um, we went down once again to help the juvenile home and different things like that. So we were very active and we had a heart for ministry. And my wife always had a heart for women. And so she would rent rooms at the YWCA and have different women's meetings to just help women that were suffering from low self-esteem or depression or abuse or mistreatment or anything that could just help a woman from a biblical basis. And sure. it evolved. It, it just evolved into us starting our own personal ministry. And then from starting our own personal ministry, it evolved into us beginning and founding a church. Okay. So at one point you decided to buy a radio station. Why did you do that? I don't know. You know, I'm the type of guy, and I've always been like that, where different opportunities come across my desk. I mean, at that time I was spending $50,000 a year on radio anyway. And so okay. good opportunity. Salem Broadcasting. Salem is a conservative station, um, one of the premier secular stations that has uh, a conservative agenda right. and has Christian ownership. And we were able to, we I heard through the grapevine that Salem had a station for sale in the Northeast Ohio area and I was able to purchase it. And, um, it, you know, I had to talk to the, the, the owner before we purchased it and uh, it's been a good acquisition. Well, 2.5 million listeners is not, not, not a bad listenership. I'd say that's pretty good. 
It has a nice footprint amen, in our, in our uh, area. And we have about two and a half million via the internet. But, you know, locally, you can turn it on in your car. It's an AM station. Right. And it has a good footprint. And it's a great listening audience. And we're able to, uh, I mean, we recently formed a show that is more political in base, but it's political with a spiritual uh, influence to it. But we're able to at least add some conservative views in this world of liberal left-wing media, oftentimes the conservative voices, especially in the black community right. and the black Christian community, the black Christian community is by and large uh, liberal because the influences that it comes to our liberal influences, even though I, I just automatically thought if you were a Christian, you are, you are uh, conservative by nature. Sure. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have been passed away, all things have become new. And we become new creatures, new creations. We become born again. And we take on the nature of God. And that nature that God has, it, to me, is a conservative nature. Right. It's a nature of good and not evil, of, of, of uh, purity and holiness and righteousness. So, you know, we want to be able to be a voice to those that have an ear to hear and a heart to receive of what we believe to be a real reflection of God. So, Dr. Scott, you now also have a record label. You are planting more churches. You are an author of a book called Don't Look Back. So many questions, but, but a threshold question for me is, do you ever sleep? <laughs> oh, yes, I do. My wife doesn't <laughs> sleep. <laughs> you know what? I have a joke that I tell that she absolutely hates. I'm going to tell it again anyway. Awesome. As my <laughs> wife does all the work, and I get all the credit. Ah, that's See, not a bad setup. As if you knew her, maybe you need to get her on one of these days. She's the driving force behind our church. You know, I make a joke all the time with the congregation. I said, if me and my wife ever divorced, I know who you guys would go with. She's, just, <laughs> she's very charismatic. She's a people person. She's a people magnet. And she's a, a true source of inspiration. She's been a help to a lot of people, so... You know, I get much sleep than she does. <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> gotcha. Well, then I look forward to having her on the show. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, you, you, are, you were one of the first prominent African-Americans to support Donald Trump's presidency. Why did you do this? I met Mr. Trump several years ago, President Trump. I met him several years ago at the behest of uh, Pastor Paula White and Trump Towers uh, back, I think, around 2010, late 10 or early 11. And, you know, she I knew she had a, a condo there. And she asked us to meet her there, excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, when we got there, Donald Trump comes out. And he simply wanted prayer. He was considering <laughs> running for president. And uh, he let us know that. And he asked us to pray for him and to pray with him that God would give him wisdom so that he could make the right de decision. Right. And I thought that remarkable right. that that's all he wanted was prayer. And we were able to spend a couple of hours together. And I actually just liked the guy. <laughs> I really liked him. I liked his personality. I liked his charisma. I liked his hospitality. Uh, he was just like, I liked his, he reminded me of me. I just like to swear. <laughs> I thought everybody, he's a white me. And then <laughs> Cohen was there, his executive vice. At the time, Michael Cohen was executive vice president, special counsel to Donald Trump. And okay. he and I bonded immediately. You ever had anybody that you met and you were just best friends instantly? Absolutely. Michael Cohen was my instant best friend. We liked, okay. each other, we liked each other from the moment we met. And we have a relationship now, you know, that's closer than friends. And the only relationship that's closer than the friend is a family. So I consider him my brother. 
He and I became very, very close over the years, and we talked on a regular basis. And when they contacted me in 2015 and said the boss is thinking about running, it was a no-brainer for me. I said, count me in. So did you get backlash within the black community for your support for Trump? Did I or do I? Yeah, well, both. Was, yes, yeah. I, I got a tremendous, tremendous amount of backlash. And I still continue to get a tremendous amount of backlash as well. But, you know, people ask me, how can you support him? And the answer for me is easy. It's because I know him. If right. I didn't know him and I had to buy into the liberal left-wing media's uh, mischaracterization of him, I might not like him either. But because I know him and because I know he's being mischaracterized, because I've spent a lot of quality time with him, formal time and informal time, it's easy for me to support him. And they don't understand, but he's going to make a believer out of him. I promise you. I told him several times, if people are able to see out front what I see in back, they'll love you. And um, the only reason the black community has any antagonism or hostility towards him is because of the media mischaracterization. But we've got some things going on behind the scenes that are going to dispel that narrative when we bring them out into the forefront. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that because the, the media has gone out of their way and continue to go out of their way to portray President Trump as a racist. I mean, they portrayed Bush as a racist. The Obamas put, put, played the race card against Bush, but now he and Mich George Bush and Jr. And, and Michelle Obama are best friends now. I mean, that's what they do. Every four years, the Democratic Party plays pin the racist on the Republican. That's right. Uh, so, you know, Bush was a racist before Donald Trump is supposedly their racist now. And that's what they do. And, you know, my people, and I can comment on this, and I joke, I say, uh, right now, white people don't have free speech in America. <laughs> and it's sad, because white people generally have to walk on eggshells when speaking of matters of race. No doubt. I can be more, and I can be more blunt about it and not be accused of being racist. But, sure. uh, yeah, it, it's the truth anyhow. And you know, every, you know, black people, African-Americans, we are emotional by nature. And so the Democratic Party has played to the emotions of the African-American community by saying, hate that guy, hate Trump. Why? Right. Because he hates you. He hates you. He hates black people. That's the narrative that is being uh, depicted uh, concerning him. And so we respond, well, since he hates us, we hate him back but it's a false narrative. I had an interview with Katie Turr on MSNBC. I happen to know Katie from the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. and, and Katie was, you know, they're trying to get through the identity politics. And Katie said, well, why do you think the Ku Klux Klan and the white supremacists support Donald Trump? And I told her, that's because you told them to support him. She said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I stopped the media for this. She said, what do you mean? It was right after Charlottesville. I right. said, because during the campaign, the candidates had certain brands, Lying Ted, Crooked Hillary, Low Energy Jeb Bush. I said, but you branded him racist Trump. You, you guys said he was a white supremacist. You guys said he was a, the son of a Ku Klux Klan, that he hated blacks and he hated Jews and he, uh, he was another Adolf Hitler. I said, and the white supremacists heard that message. That's right. And they into that narrative. And they said to themselves, well, if what the media is saying is true, and he is like that, then he's our candidate of choice. So I right. said, so if the white supremacists go to Donald Trump, it's because you sent them to Donald Trump. The liberal media sent the white supremacists to Donald Trump. Uh, and, but he is not the way they depict him to be. 
Well, there's, there's no doubt that after Trump got the nomination, the media did everything within their power to try to tear him down and try to elect Hillary Clinton. And I've often said that uh, here we are a year after the election and the media is still complaining about Russia. And at the end of the day, they're just more upset that Russia was more effective at influencing the outcome of the election than the liberal media was. Exactly. And then they're saying that Russia influenced the election via Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so Hillary's billion dollars that she spent on that campaign and all of her media buys and all of her uh, outreach centers and her campaign headquarters, you mean to tell me some Facebook accounts were more effective than that? Amazing. Give me a break. Absolutely amazing. That is good. Jai is good. President Trump and his wonderful, remarkable, amazing campaign staff members identified what it would take to win this election, and they capitalized on it. And they knew sure. that the Electoral College was the key, and they utilized it. And, you know, for anyone that cries foul about the Electoral College system, but not cry foul about the superdelegate system that the Democratic Party mm. has that... Hillary had the election before she even entered because she had enough right. superdelegates. That just, that just, you know. Yeah, let's go talk to Bernie Sanders about how, how fair that process is, right? Yeah. So you you're know, now the CEO of President Trump's Diversity Coalition. What, what's on the agenda moving forward for that group? Well, the, actually, the national diversity system has, had, has given birth. And I'll say this. The goal of the National Diversity Coalition was to elect our candidate, to support our candidate and get him elected for president. Right. Now that he's done that, the National Diversity Coalition has given birth to a child that's giving birth to other children. And that child is the Urban Revitalization Coalition. We have a 13-point model for urban revitalization in this country. Um, it's, it's amazing. I'm working with the White House right now in different departments of government, the Department of Commerce, uh, Domestic Policy, White House Office of Innovations, and we're going to roll out a 13-point model for the revitalization of the urban communities in America that is going to be a model of public-private participation. And we've got a number of businesses from the private sector, and we're going to um, synergize with the government jobs, urban renewal, urban revitalization, uh, affordable housing, neighborhood redevelopment. It's going to be a very, very comprehensive plan. But now we began the initial program for urban revitalization, but now we're even going to break it into different ethnic groups. Uh, the Urban Revitalization Co Coalition has given birth to the American Revitalization Coalition because we don't want to focus solely upon the African-American community. Because sure. this model that we have, it will work in middle America, it will work in urban America as well. And so I have different leaders of different ethnic groups in the coalition. Christos Merfastos represents the Greek community. We have uh, Maggie Nichols that represents the Haitian community, among others. And they want to do for their people what's being done for the African-American community. So we're going to have the Greek revitalization, Greek-American revitalization nice, coalition, nice. Hey, American revitalization coalition. So it almost it, it's become like, uh, you know, uh, a branch with a lot of different vines. You know, the, the urban revitalization, I mean, the, the National Diversity Coalition is the branch 
but the vines that, that go off from that from that root. And we're going to do what we can to make this country great again. I love hearing it. It uh, chills up my spine. But let me ask you something. The Democrats have been running every major urban center in the country for the past 50, 60 years. Haven't they already solved all those problems that you're talking about addressing? They solved their individual problems. They didn't solve the collective problems because probably a dime out of every dollar that the Democrats got uh, made it to the streets. I don't know where the other 90 cents went. <laughs> ah, good question. Good question. They've succeeded in indenturing the black community and making us dependent upon government assistance. This public-private participation that we're having is going to help build self-esteem. We're going to provide good-paying jobs, entrepreneurial opportunities, home ownership. It's not going to be that traditional welfare model, uh, that dependent model. It's going to stimulate ethnic pride. It's going to be something that's unprecedented. And the reason why is uh, our motives are clear. And I, I know the pulse of the street. And the people that are working with me know the pulse of their respective communities. And I, once again, with our motives being pure, we're sure. going to get this done. Uh, I'm excited. Let us know what we can do here in Texas to be of help. We're going to implement this model in Texas, so I'm going to contact you because Good. we're going to drop it in uh, as many major cities across the country that we can. And we're going to partner with the different uh, businesses in different states and different uh, cities like we're doing a, a project with the city in Bridgeport, Connecticut already. We have some other cities that we're engaging with. And so we're going to do this model all across the country. And it's going to be great for America. That's very, very, very exciting. So I want to switch gears on you a little bit and talk to you about a couple different topics that have been in the news recently. Give me your thoughts on Colin Kaepernick. I think Colin Kaepernick is a kid. I mean, I'm 59 years old. I thought I was, I thought I knew it all when I was 25, 26. Sure. I think he's a kid that will look back later on in life and second guess some of the decisions that he made. I think if he had it to do over again and go back two years, he would make a different decision because, you know, he had a guaranteed contract that he opted out of to test the free agent market. And he began to be idealistic as kids begin to be, and, you know, he began to, you know, there's a scripture in the Bible when Jesus talked to the woman at the well in Samaria. He said, you worship, you know not. And I think he protests what he knows not. It's a walking contradiction. You can't protest human rights and civil rights and civil mistreatment while wearing a T-shirt with Fidel Castro on it, one of the greatest violators of human rights in the 20th century. You can't say Che Guevara That's is right. one of your heroes when these guys are serial human rights violators. So, you know, he's is a study in contradiction and contradistinction. So I just think he's a kid that, you know, he wanted to do something, he did it, and it, 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 it mushroomed into something that I don't know if he could second guess whether he would sure. do it again because he isn't kneeling now. He is a right. He's somebody that's unemployed that had a passion for football that finds himself out of football. That's right. You know, I feel really sorry for him because he's a product of liberal indoctrination uh, that's happening all across college campuses in the country. He's a product of this left-wing media narrative that paints every police officer as a racist 
right? And, and every time there's a shooting, it's because that officer is a racist. And so he's reacting to those things, and I feel sorry for him. And you know what? I said something today. I posted it on Facebook. I mean, I posted it on Twitter. I tweeted it because I had to reflect upon the fact that President Trump intervened in China to get those three UCLA basketball players free. And, the, you know, the, the, the college UCLA thanked him, the commissioner of the Pac-12 thanked him, and the Chinese authorities acknowledged it was because of his intervention. But mm -hmm. if those had been three white players and the president intervened, it would have been... Uh, they, he would have been, they would have been accused of white privilege and <laughs> accused of using white privilege and yeah. his role as white supremacist to set them free. And the whole narrator would have been, if they were black, he'd have left them in there. Sure. And so Colin Kaepernick is a victim of this. He's a victim of media propaganda. I'm sorry. Most people believe anything they see or anything they read. It, it's right. just a fact of life. And, the, the, and as a result, they become products of uh, manipulation, and they're not even aware of it. Well, for whatever reason, and I don't know what their motivation is, the media is fueling racial divide in this country. They, in my opinion, are the cause of whatever problems we have amongst the races today, not Donald Trump, uh, not anyone else, but the media. And, and I'm not sure what's motivating them, but it's, uh, it's insidious and it's awful and it's bad for the future of the country. Listen, it's a false narrative. I said this and I repeat it. White America is not getting up in the morning telling themselves I hate black America. Black America is not getting up in the morning telling themselves I hate white America. Right. We're trying to go to work, live our life, eat, sleep, breathe, have our families, pay our bills, drive our car, cut our grass, go get the mail, have a little leisure time, and, 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 and go back to work the next day. That's Nobody's right. doing that. Media driving that. You didn't tell yourself... I wouldn't. I would never have Daryl Scott on that show because I, I'm a, a racist white guy from Texas, and I wouldn't tell right. myself I'd never go on Trey Blocker's show because he's white and I'm black. That stuff is not the truth, and right. and, and everybody knows it. But they tried to, to to um, make it that way. Recently, when they had that verdict, I forget which city it was in, the media gave it very little media attention because when the verdict was announced, there was no violence. Sure. Uh, about some police officers or something that, 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 get, that got off the hook. And so it isn't what the media is trying to make it be. And it's only because Donald Trump is president. When That's Obama right. was president, they tried to act like we were all sitting down at the table of brotherhood singing Kumbaya together. Now, all of a sudden, it's this racial uh, divide that they're trying to tell us exists in America, but it doesn't exist. Sure. So, Pastor Scott, um, when you were on Sean Hannity's show, you both talked about the recent shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, just south of where we are today, where I am today. And you had some interesting comments on gun control and guns in churches. Uh, would, you, would you mind uh, sharing those thoughts? Well, sure. First of all, disarming the country is not the answer because the criminals, and take it from me, I know, I was one. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to have guns anyway. That's right. And all that will do is make the criminal's job easier. I'm telling you what I know. I'm not telling you what I think. Sure. Um, the thought that someone is and can potentially be con uh, concealed carry, it is a crime deterrent. I know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and so, but at my church, you know, a, a lot of my deacons carry and a lot of my members carry. Right. And I'm glad they carry. It's sure. a deterrent. 
And they're, they're, they're willing to use it. And we also, I also have a uniformed police at my church. I like to have a police car out in front just in right. case somebody gets stupid. But you have to understand, you know, I came out of those streets. A lot of the guys that go to my church came out of those streets. Somebody come to my church with a gun, they might get one shot off. That's right. That's right. <laughs> they better, they, whatever their target is, they better hit it because they're not going to get two off. I tell you that much. And I encourage all churches. Now, should it be? No, in an ideal world. But it's not an ideal world. It's not an ideal society. So it's a very real reality. I encourage churches because of this anti-Christian, and that's from the devil himself using the liberal left-wing media to inspire this anti-Christian sentiment that is pervading, the world that was, that was pervading America until Donald Trump became president. You know, it's it's an anti-Christian hostility that exists among a number of people. And so they'll try to come in and shoot up a church, and especially churches that they think are Trump-supporting churches. Right. And as we, you know, so, so yes, you should carry a gun. My security, I have a very visible security presence at my church, and I'm glad for it. Well, and, and as we know, evil will figure out a way to manifest itself Wherever it is and whatever the implement or the tool at hand is, in America, it might be a gun. In Europe, it's organic fertilizer and nuts and bolts and a bomb. So, you know, the, the left always tries to capitalize on a shooting in order to achieve their objective of banning firearms in America. But that just means we have to stay ever vigilant in the protection of what is a God-given right, a God-given right to self-defense. Let me ask you this. How long have illegal narcotics been banned in America? As long well, as I can as, remember. Right. right. Has that eliminated drug abuse? Has that eliminated drug use, drug sales? I mean, we have an opioid epidemic even now. That's right. Uh, we have a drug epidemic. We have a heroin epidemic uh, in America right now. And uh, heroin has been illegal. But criminals are going to find a way. And so, you know, to make all guns illegal is simply going to take the guns out of the hand of those that have legitimate motivation for having a gun. They want to protect their homes, protect their families, and protect themselves. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to protect yourself. And if Absolutely the not. wants a gun, he's going to find one. Right, right. We don't so need to be defensive. You mentioned something a second ago, and there does seem to be this increasing bias, and certainly is amongst the media, uh, but an increasing bias against Christianity in America. And, and in my opinion, this country was founded as a Christian nation, yet we have this push. We have this push against Christianity. We have a, a baker in, in Colorado who is being punished because he didn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex couple, and there are just these growing instances, the ACLU attacking a, a county courthouse because they decided to put a nativity scene in the courthouse lawn, and it seems like these instances are occurring more and more and more frequently. Is that just my imagination? No, it's not your imagination. It's an actual fact. But you know what? Once again, it's anti-Christian bias and anti-Christian sentiment because I, I, I will bet a dollar to a donut that if the owners of that bakery had been Orthodox Muslims and they refused to do it, they wouldn't have received the criticism and ostracism. They said, oh, no way, Islam is anti-homosexual, so they're just adhering to their religious beliefs. 
Right. But they try to paint us as the fanatics and that we're crazy or that we're wrong. Uh, I had a, a liberal reporter interview me one time when I said that uh, Donald Trump wanted to return this country to Judeo-Christian values and principles. And she took offense to that. And she said, well, what about the Muslims? What about the Buddhists? I said, wait a minute. Judeo-Christian, let's look at it. Judeo, Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt right. not lie or bear false witness. Thou shalt not steal. Those are uh, values that this country is founded on. And Christian values, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So those embody the Judeo-Christian values. So what's wrong with that? And she was dumbfounded. She couldn't reply to it. But she was just <laughs> looking for a reason to poke holes. This nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and it's one nation under God. Absolutely. Amen. Well, so what do you think is driving this increasing hostility towards Christianity in this country? Well, as a pastor, I'll say the devil is behind it. Satan is behind it. Um, evolution, the theory of evolution, which is, is satanically inspired, it's behind it. Because, see, when you, when, you, when you take evolution at face value, you take it as a fact and not as an unproven and actually a disproven theory. If we're nothing but animals, if we're nothing, if we have a brute, if we're nothing but brutes, then there is no such thing as moral absolutes. Uh, when you do away with moral absolutes, then you have a society where anything goes. That's right. And as we see the the fruit, we see the results of a country that does not have moral absolutes, then there is no such thing as, you know, there's a script in the Bible that talks about every man doing right, which was in the sight of their own eyes. And so when you, when you have all of that ties in together to create this uh, decline in the morality that we have in this country right now. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and we're at a point where, uh, although you and I, when we read our Bible, we know that God created two genders, male and female, yet the left now tries to argue that there are over 50 genders. That I haven't quite gotten my head around yet. Listen, let me, let me say this. There is no biological provision for homosexuality because uh, there is biological provision for heterosexuality. The human body was designed for heterosexuality, not for homosexuality. So if we're looking at it from a biological standpoint, I'm sorry, your rear is an exit. It's not an entrance. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what my biology book said for sure. So there is no biological provi provision for it. And so you can try to uh, uh, misuse uh, your, your, your body parts, uh, or uh, when you when you misuse or abuse them, the abuse is abnormal use. In other words, you're using it for what is not intended to be used for. That you know, that, that's what we see. Uh, but you know that that once again, that's all goes back to if you take away a person's conscience. When you take away that conscience, you're taking away that sense of right and wrong. We take away that sense of right and wrong. A person can justify themselves through their own eyes, and they become. Uh, as that poem says, I'm the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. When there's no accountability to a higher power, when there's no ultimate reconciliation or uh, ultimate uh, accountability, then you do whatever you want to do. Absolutely. And there's, there's, you know, it is what it is. And so right. that's where that's where this world is is heading to right now. Well, it's sad. It's it's a it's a sad state of affairs, and we just have to keep pushing back and keep spreading the word.
Uh, you know, one overarching theme of this conversation I've noticed, and we're quickly running out of time, unfortunately, is this left-wing bias. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about the fact that 90% of news articles uh, or news reports on Donald Trump are negative. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if we're talking about gun control or attacks on Christianity. So what's the solution to that problem? Because in my view, they're driving this country in the wrong direction. How do we solve that problem? There's a scripture that says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. There's another scripture that says, having your face set like a flint. There's a scripture that says, in him we live and move and have our being. I believe God exercised his will in Donald Trump becoming president. I believe that as a result that uh, we on the right, our voices have become stronger and we are making demands for a return to morality, conservatism, and Christianity in this country. I believe we have to continue to fight the good fight of faith. And um, uh, the Bible speaks of having your loins girt about with truth, having on a breastplate of righteousness, feet shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All of these components are going to be extremely necessary in these last days so that we can continue to wage war against the enemy and try to defend this country from the inside out, not necessarily from the outside in. And I believe Absolutely. we're going to be all right and continue to take a stand for what is right and, 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 and oppose the forces of darkness and the, the liberal left-wing agenda on that side, and we're going to be all right. Amen. Well, Dr. Daryl Scott, uh, thank you for coming on the Trey Blocker Show. We typically end with a, a quote, a Bible verse, or a song lyric of choice from our guests, but you just rattle off about 10. You want to share one, one more? I'm going to give you a song lyric because if I sing, your show will get canceled. Um, <laughs> you know, John 3.16 is the favorite one we see all the time, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the one I like, and it was a scripture that did a lot for me in my younger days, and it, it does a lot for me still today when you think about it. It's Ecclesiastes 4.6. Ecclesiastes 4.6 says, Better is one handful with quietness than both their hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. And that's a scripture that I stand on a lot. Uh, and, and it has helped me tremendously. And it continues to help me now. Better to have one hand full with peace and tranquility and quietness than trying to get both hands full it's a lot of stress and worry and confusion and nervous and anxiety. So Absolutely. thanks for having me, man. I Thank you, Dr. It. Scott. Appreciate it. This was going to be one of those two or three or five minute hits. And we had a whole program, but I thank you for it. I'm on my way to church. I'm running late for church now. All right. Sorry to keep you. Sorry to keep you. Let us know what we can do down here in Texas to help out. I will. I'll contact you. I promise. God bless you. All right. God bless you. Thank you, sir. This has been the Trey Blocker Show. If you like what you heard, please visit TreyBlocker.com for more episodes and a chance to donate and support the show. Thank you for listening.